0: Hello and welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. You're listening to the podcast for people who want to learn about the government market from the contracting officer's perspective. If you are a contracting officer, we hope to give you a little more insight into industry's perspective. Today's episode is about follow-on contracts. Let's get started. Hey Kevin, today we're going to talk about follow-on contracts.
1: We are. There's a term out there called logical follow-on. It talks about whether or not you should compete a contract when there's already an incumbent. And we wanted to talk about the pros and cons of that because it comes up a lot.
0: Industry always wants a sole source follow-on contract. If they have have the work, they don't want it to be recompeted. And happy users, happy customers, they don't want to change. They want that too. The problem is that the FAR doesn't easily allow for that. So like you just said, we're going to talk about the advantages and disadvantages. So if you would allow me to set the stage by reading a, a, a brief paragraph, let's let's talk about what is a follow-on contract. So a follow-on contract means a new non-competitive procurement placed with an incumbent contractor either by a separate new contractor or by a supplemental agreement, a change to the previous contract to continue or augment a specific, program where such placement was necessitated, it's a big word, necessitated by prior procurement decisions. So example is a contract award for the production of a major weapon system to the contractor that developed the major weapon system. And here's the important part. When the award to any other source would result in substantial duplication of cost to the government that is not expected to be recovered through competition. So what it's saying is you're going to give this contract to the person that developed the airplane because someone else would have to build a factory in order to do that. And that's really expensive. So even if you competed it, the price per plane is not going to come down that much, enough to to make up for the cost of building the factory. So you can't confuse that with the other reasons for why for for why a sole source following can be justified, right? You can't say, well, it's logical. The key a lot of times is that substantial duplication of cost that's not expected to be recovered. So one one of the other things you need to remember is that when you're when you're thinking about substantial duplication of cost, you may underthink it because a lot of times there's intangibles that that are that are in this that aren't included in your calculations of duplication of cost. And that's what we're going to talk about here in a second. So that, that sets the stage. We always like to set the acquisition time zone. This, what we're talking about here is you have an incumbent contractor that's been working on something. You have a valid requirement that's continuing. You need to figure out how you're going to acquire that in the future. So we're talking about uh, zone one, the requirement zone, and zone two, the market research zone where you're setting up for the next acquisition.
1: And, and by the way, for those of you who are new to the podcast, the acquisition time zones Go back to podcast number three, I believe it is, mm. and it walks through. I, I just realized that there we've got some new listeners, and we drop terms like that. And sometimes they don't know what it is. Good point. So it's it's the acquisition time zones is what they sound like. It's the phases we go through between requirement and award. And go back to the other podcast, and you can hear them.
0: Let's talk about considerations that that you should have running through your mind as you're as you're trying to justify whether or not to do a sole source follow on. So the good thing about a sole source follow-on is that you're, you get continuity. You get the experience that the contractor that's been doing the job has, and they get to keep doing it. There's also there's no transition or startup costs involved. You don't have to wind one contractor down while another contractor is ramping up. There's no there's no time where you have two folks working at once. You know, like if you if you have a a base maintenance contract, you may need some overlap. So so the the contractor the outgoing contractor actually is teaching the incoming some of the tricks of the trade they're not actually going to teach him any of the tricks they're going <laughs> to let him wallow
1: but and, and this is also this is a huge deal on production contracts when you're buying a product right because there's a there's a there's a ramp up i mean even if it's a commercial item they still have to start delivering <laughs> the first lot of them right. so there yeah there's there's cost in there
0: right so the pros are very Uh, obvious I'll say like everybody that probably wasn't a surprise to anybody, but the, the, there's cons to sticking with the incumbent as well. Um, first among them I would say is apathy. The, the, the incumbent may just be so comfortable and the customer may be so comfortable with what's going on that there's no reason to change. So if you're looking to save money or do anything differently, you're gonna have a tough time with with the incumbent you sorry, not you're gonna you may it all depends on the situation. Another con is that with the incumbent, you're more likely to see escalation of the price straight line costs a little more each year due to cost of living increases and all that. You don't get that reset of the price that competition sometimes brings where someone else comes in and they're they 're more aggressive, hungrier to get the work, so they 're willing to to do it for a little less profit, so that hopefully they can be the incumbent and get that escalation in the future
1: and and the other example of this is it 's not just a matter of they 're coming in cheaper and they 're charging less. It could be a matter of in particularly in technology contracts, but in business in general, doing certain things costs less over time. Uh, technology has allowed for you need fewer offices because people can work from home. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are causing costs of managing a business to go down. And most, again, not all the time, most of the time, that efficiency isn't going to show up when you have a sole source contract. So think about how much does it cost you to, to buy a, uh, a 500 megabyte um, external hard drive? How much did it cost 10 years ago? That's a stupid example, but you get my point. It's like things I've gotten, have gotten a lot cheaper in some areas. That does not show up. From my experience, that has never <laughs> shown up yeah. in the sole source follow-ons that I've had. Whereas in competition, it will show up just yeah, by you, people are rethinking it. You
0: have to spread that analogy because obviously, if you were talking about hard drives, whoever you have could just buy the cheaper hard drives and charge you less. But, but yes, that's a big big analogy. It's perfectly, perfectly said. Yes. It makes sense. One of the cons that I think a lot of people don't think about is the same as one of the pros it's it's continuity and you you were just sort of talking about that but yes continuity can be a good thing you get all that experience but you also you sometimes lose the chance for innovations improvements and and just overall change if if you're if you're looking to have something done better sometimes bring in somebody else is is the answer because the people that have been doing it only see the world one way
1: and another way if look at this from the contractor's perspective is they're not really incentivized to get better at certain things what i mean by that is they have limited resources to innovate right so if they're going to take i don't know say twenty five thousand dollars of their own research and development money to make some process better and I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush, but you get the idea. They're going to do that where it's going to have the best return, i.e. a competitive environment. Whereas if this contract's locked down and they're going to have it for the next 20 years, honestly, or even for the next five, honestly, how motivated are they to take that twenty-five grand and invest it in making this contract better as opposed to one they're going to have to recompete for in five Right. And
0: it, is the government actually going to, to put that into the statement of work that, hey, I want you to, to spend this much money that we'll reimburse you for to, to make things better? The government's not real good at that part.
1: And, and, and they may, and they may even put that into the waiting guidelines, and, but yeah, see, it's a, it's a, it's a slippery slope, but more often than not, given the option, the company in order to stay in business has to put it where it's going to have the most impact to their ability to stay in business, which means in, where they can create more work, not just keep the work they already have.
0: Yeah. So why is this important to understand for, for government and industry to understand the, the pros and cons of this? You've mentioned the term before, a logical follow on.
1: Logical follow-on is one of those phrases that, that's just used. I don't think it's actually in the FAR. And it, what it basically says, the, the phrase came from where he had a, I believe it was like a five-year contract. And I was, at the time, I was review, reviewing somebody else's work. And they were, they were task orders they were putting on the contract. And this is the first time I'd heard the term back in the day. And they said, well, this company's already started doing it. This particular task is now grown. It's for a multiple award contract. And instead of competing it with the other uh, c- contract holders, under this multiple award, they said, these guys have already started. They're already into it. It's a logical follow-on. And that, I, which you kind of get that from a general sense, but then that kind of blows up into all of a sudden everything's a logical follow-on. And so think about it. We started this conversation with, as a company, you'd love to have everything be a follow-on. And as a, and as a customer, a lot of times, i actually had a program manager say to me once, can't we just use the same companies? Why, can't we just keep using them? And to me, as the contracting officer, I'm like, yeah, if you ignore like the whole FARC. But but th- again, that's my skill set, right? Because because we're we're forced to compete this stuff. But my point of that is that to the customer, everything's a logical follow on. If I'm if I'm happy, there's a big equal sign. Logical follow on. There you go. So that whole idea here. But you, the thing is, you can't go into it blindly because you have to understand what is the what is the value of doing a logical follow on. Does it make sense in this case? Can you actually make the case under FAR Part Seven, which you can go back to. I, think, I believe it's podcast number seventeen. We talked about. Uh, justification and approval. And I'm sorry, it's far part six. But the reality here is that competing may save you money through innovation, efficiencies and improvements, all the stuff we already talked about. It also may save you money as in the greening, in, in the, air- the
0: mythical air quotes, greening of the workforce that was very popular a while that, Hey, as time goes along, we're going to roll off all the experienced people and bring on younger people, less experienced people that will cost you less which yeah. yeah, that's a great proposal strategy that does that ever really happen? Does that ever really work? And if you're, you're the customer, do you really want a contractor to say, yeah, we're going to get rid of people, all, all the people that know what they're doing and give you a bunch of people that don't.
1: And and so here's an example of, of what that feels like. We have a, I hired an accounting firm and I had a CPA and then we had a, like a, almost a CPA. And by the time you know, you're into the relationship, I think it was like an intern. It was managing mm-hmm. our stuff. And that, that's what greening looks like. So, as a now, in this case, it wasn't a cost type contract. So, I was not getting the benefit of that savings. They were turning it into profits. So, you're, no,
0: you're getting the benefit of a surprise tax bill at the end of the year when they it, miss something. That, yes, that's all. That looks,
1: <laughs> That's what the small business podcast will start someday, the lessons learned there. Uh, but, but the point is, greening is one of those things that if it's, a, if it's your cost strategy, meaning that you're going to lower your costs over time. That that actually has its own risk because, like you just mentioned, these are less experienced people. Is that really what the customer wants? Yep. So when you're competing, you're kind of forcing that. So it may save you money, but it could cause other issues. So you have to understand. This goes back to the requirement phase make sure you understand. What
0: yeah, the it's the other. It's the other side of it. It may save competing may save you money. It may cost you money because yeah, you might be getting those innovations, the efficiencies, but you may also be building in inefficiencies because the new awardee may not understand the entire job that they've been on. There may be a lot of tribal knowledge built into the incumbent that you don't understand how the incumbent is doing. It, it may seem like the incumbent could do it for cheaper, but they've, they, they know what they're doing and they know how to get the job done. Someone new may come in and think that they know what they're, what it's going to cost. they may, propose a lower price than it actually costs to do the job because they don't know all this tribal knowledge that that this is what it really takes to do it so in the end you may award to someone new and it may cost you even more because you have to pay for them to figure out all this stuff that they didn't know or that you didn't know to to be able to write in the requirements and in the end, you end up with a new awardee and it takes them a couple years to get back to where they're just doing as good a job as the person that you had before.
1: And, and so let's just put, the, put it out there. How do you fix this? We're foot stomped this all day long. Communication. Because here's how this happens. Company wins a contract in 2010. In 2013, it's a five-year contract. In 2013, the program manager retires and the contracting officer, having been in that position for three years, moves over to a different office. So now you have a brand new Contract specialist, contracting officer, managing the, con- the the source selection that's coming up in year five. This is 2014, we'll, we'll pretend. And then you also have a new program manager who wasn't here last time. The only So think about that. The only person at the table who really has been here the whole time, and I'm oversimplifying, but you get the analogy. The only person who's been here the whole time is the contractor. And they would love to have a logical follow-on. So their, their strategy is, well, I don't really want to make it totally clear <laughs> right. what I'm exactly gonna, I've been doing. However,
0: it if I can.
1: however, if they're going to compete this, I need to make sure that the statement of work shows all the stuff that's been happening. And what oftentimes happens, you hear us talk about this a lot is this copy and paste. I just wrote a blog post about what's changed. Did you check? And this is one of those moments where if you take the same statement of work and you put it on this next one, five years later, and you don't have a really hard conversation with the incumbent about is this thing the same thing that's been happening? Is, is this the same statement of work? And granted, you're going to negotiate that with them. And they're going to tell you that it's doing, you know, think, think about their point of view and they're going to think about yours. But that conversation needs to happen because if it doesn't, then you end up with this competition where you, like you just described, Paul, where you have a situation where only the incumbent knew this was 100 hours a week, whereas the RFP makes it sound like to the average person who stumbled upon it, it's only 60 hours a week and they underprice it and you got a train wreck. So communicate over what exactly is happening as much as you can. Okay, I'll, I'll stop.
0: <laughs> Let's get specific yes. about why government and industry should care. So government should care, and this, is, this goes back to logical. A sole source follow may be the logical choice, but FAR 6.3 doesn't allow logical we got our as, far reference as, Jack. A, as a re, yeah logical is not one of the reasons for not doing a full and open competition. Another reason the government should care is if you do a sole source follow on, your incumbent may not look hard enough at efficiencies, innovations, and change. We said that a bunch of times. Third reason, competition is time consuming and can be expensive. So if, even for a small competition there are there's some costs involved just in in conducting the composition and that's leaving out transition costs and all that other stuff that we've already talked about so do your market research and if you can write a sole source justification write that A J&A that says why this sole source makes sense just make sure you understand the pros and cons of why it makes sense or not and one other reason that's important to me is Competition may not actually solve all the problems that you have with the incumbent.
1: And (laughs) I I laugh at that one because it's, it's, it's one of those things that it's not really obvious. When you think about from a contracting officer perspective, the statement of work seemed like it was pretty solid. And all of a sudden you realize that what's making your relationship with the contractor so maddeningly frustrating could be something like the travel cleanse. Are, are very difficult to execute and as a result the contractor is overrunning on cost and then sending you a uh, a request for equitable adjustment every quarter and you keep trying to figure out why is the cost going up each quarter and i'm having to negotiate it, it's becoming an admin nightmare etc right well you recompete the contract not realizing that was what was causing it because you weren't communicating with the company and all of a sudden you realize wow so the Competing it didn't solve the problem. It's the same statement of work that 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 turd <laughs> that's inside my contract isn't inside my next contract, and that's something that it it's hard to see. Those I mean I, I, I use that example that'd be an easy one to see, but it could be performance metrics. It could be it could be the the specific um, technical capability that might not exist in the market, but one company kind of is winging it and figured it out, but they don't have a patent. So you, what you don't realize is nobody else can do this. There's all kinds of things in there. that unless you communicate and do a draft RFP and really get this out to industry and say. Do we really understand what's happening here and what's causing our problems? And to your point, Paul, is that if you don't see that, competition may not make those problems go away. In yeah. fact, they could you know, amplify them.
0: One of the things that the government worries about is, is buying in. Uh, you, you hear that all the time. So a, a contractor bidding an unrealistically low price to beat out the incumbent and then figuring that they'll just make it up later through through changes or the government will have to pay once they're once they've signed the contract with the new contractor then they'll just have to pay. And the government worries about that, but they can actually prevent it through the way they write the RFP, through the way section L and M are written. If you really do emphasize the the cost or price realism, reasonableness and completeness and you understand what a realistic price and a complete price is, then someone cannot buy in and 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 underbid and and just walk into the contract already kind of behind the curve because they don't have enough money to do what they need to do. The most important thing I think you need to understand on both sides of the equation here, government and industry, is that the incumbent... In a in a recompetition, they're actually limited by their knowledge of what it actually takes to do the job, and that it's not an obvious thing. But the incumbent can't make guesses that that let them price it lower. They know what it's going to take, and they may be unwilling to price in a bunch of risk that that magical things will happen that will save them money because they've been there and they know what it is. The competitors are coming into this. They may not have actual experience doing that actual job at that actual place for that actual customer. So they may make wild leaps of faith in their proposal based on what's in the RFP that, oh, yeah, we can do all this stuff for this cost and come in with a much lower price. If the government doesn't understand that there are wild leaps of faith in there and they don't really understand, the competitors don't really understand what it's going to take to do the job. You can end up with a real problem where you've done a competition and you end up with somebody else that not only doesn't understand the whole job, but was guessing at a lot of how they were going to do it and figured out, figured that they would figure it out later. So that's, that's where that's, that's like the opposite. You think the the incumbent has all of the advantage going into a competition, but many, many times the incumbent loses because their price is too high. And the whole reason their price is too high is because they actually know what it's going to cost to do it.
1: And this is a great example. This wild, wild leaps of faith idea is that's why it's so important to explain the how, because as a, as somebody who's bidding on the contract, you need to know, or you need to show that you know how you're going to be able to do this. It's not just a price exercise. It's a how how are you actually going to do the work? And for example, this is a huge problem when you say, well, I can find these people in this contract, or I can find this skill set, or I can get this piece of equipment. Well, if you never had the contract, and the, and the and the incumbent has had wild challenges trying to get the people that can do this for at, at all, let alone you know, for a certain price, because you know the I don't know, the market is the market for this particular skill set is very hot. Whatever, that kind of stuff you need to show how, and that's why contracting officers are very adamant on how are you going to do this. For you to say, yeah, I'll be able to get that that I'll be able to get so much titanium by you know that particular date. Really, were you going to get it because you can't buy it from China? Did you know that? There's all these things that go through your head that when you're reading a proposal that you think, wow, you got to show me how you're going to do that. And this is where that shows up is the incumbent knows how and they're going to explain how. And as a result, they're probably going to show how their price is higher (laughs) because they got more work to do.
0: Right. And so that's that's actually a good point for why industry should care about this, too, that 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 last point of the incumbent is hampered by their knowledge of what the job really takes. Crosses the line between why the government cares and why the industry cares. Everybody should care about that. The specifics on the industry side of why industry should care. First, you need to be prepared in advance of this sole source decision recompetition. You need to be prepared in advance to protect your work. You need to help the customer justify why a sole source follow-on is is logical. Why can, You need to help them besides logical, get to those far reasons why full and open competition is not required here. The biggest advantage you can have in this is a happy customer. If your customer is happy, they do not want to recompete. They don't want to take the time and money to do that. They want to keep going just like it is. If they're not happy, they're not going to look very hard for reasons to sole source it. Another thing for industry what if you really don't understand the problem and you win anyway? What if you underpriced it because you missed a few things that that the government's not going to have sympathy for? And you, what if you win it anyway and you're immediately facing an uphill battle to, to make the customer happy? Parallel to that, what if you beat the incumbent and the customer didn't really want that change? And I, this might be an obscure one, but... Again, it's an uphill battle. There are cases where the, the far says recompete, it's recompeted, and the the company that wins is not really who the customer wanted. Then you have to deal with people that may not be looking out for you to be successful.
1: Yeah, and, and that's a that's something we see with some of our customers where they win this new work and it's obvious that they had been so used to even even though the the previous contractor may not have been performing as well it's human nature to get used to that same company and there are also other companies that will jump in at a low price or will find some shenanigan way to win the work i, I get it and then in a year or two later they they fail and this is why we need to do a whole whole new lesson on like you know far part nine of really understanding how to tell what contractors are good coming in but that's a rabbit hole sorry <laughs> lots of
0: those so one last point on why industry should care, and I already talked about this: What if you bid so low that you can't make the customer happy? Sometimes that's a strategy that's the old price to win, which is different than the price to actually execute it. but you can also inadvertently bid so low if if you don't completely understand the requirements or if they weren't written really well, if there's a lot of tribal knowledge on the part of the incumbent. then you're in a situation where you you can't make the customer happy because there's not enough money to do the job the way it, it should be done. So now the customer is going to put in your past performance appraisals that you underbid it and you didn't do a good job and past performance is That's great. You know, it's out there on the internet. People can check it and see, see what uh, other government customers have, have said about your performance, but that's really nothing compared to the, the, your reputation. And that's word of mouth. Like you, you can burn yourself at an entire agency by not performing well on one contract. So, yeah, it's it's there's a past performance appraisal that says you didn't do too well on this, but everybody knows. People talk, and that's the situation you'll find you you could find yourself in. So to summarize what we were talking about, a sole source follow-on may seem logical, but it still may not be the best strategy. You really have to consider what you stand to gain or lose through competition. And that goes from the industry side you need to understand what you stand to gain or lose through competing for something where there is an entrenched incumbent. Lastly, if you're on the industry side, remember that a happy customer looks for reasons to avoid a competitive follow-on. An unhappy customer looks for reasons to avoid a sole source follow-on. Yeah,
1: well said. And, and the way that plays out is even if you're the only one that can do something, there may come a day when you're not the only one they can do it five, 10 years from now. But people are motivated to do market research to find somebody else if they're not happy with you.
0: All right, let's say thanks to everyone for being a podcast listener. Don't forget to send us your topics at ContractingOfficerPodcast.com. You hit that contact button. Let us know what you want to learn more about. You can always connect with us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. And Kevin, you want to give your iTunes plug?
1: I do. So please write us a review on iTunes. It's how we bubble up in the ratings and we can more easily be found by people who need this information and we're giving away this stuff for free. So please help them find it.
0: (laughs) So listeners, if the podcast is enough for you, that's awesome. If you want more depth on any of these topics, join the Skyway Connection community. You go to skywayacquisition.com slash connect. And if you use the promo code podcast, you can actually try it for free for a couple of weeks.
1: And then one more fun thing here, a little announcement for you is if you like what we're doing, but you don't need to be a community member, that that's fine. If you're, if, if it's not for you, that's not the point of this. However, if you like what we're doing and you want us to do more of it and you just want to back us up, go to contracting officer podcast.com slash backers. And you can actually honestly just help. (laughs) There you go.
0: Throw a dollar in the bucket. Keep the website up and running. All right. Thanks, Kevin. I'll talk to you later. See you, Paul. Okay, that's it for this week's episode. As always, if you have questions, comments, or complaints, go to com, hit the contact button, and let us know what you think. Thanks for listening.